Right, we're going to read the Bible together now, so Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to grab one of these black hardback Bibles on the pews, you can do that, and it's going to be page 1006, 1006, and it's going to be Hebrews chapter 11, and we're reading verse 15 all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 28, so quite a chunk. Verse Hebrews chapter 9, kicking off in verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. If you've got got those black hardback Bibles, it's going to be page... 1006. I think most of us have got there. And it goes like this. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not a force, as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all of the people, he took the blood of calves and goats uh, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not its own. For then he would have had suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Peter. Good evening, everybody. It's really, really good to see you here tonight. Uh, We are going to be camping out there in Hebrews 9, so please do keep those Bibles open. Um, I've heard it's daring for a preacher to choose Hebrews to preach on, and there's quite a few verses there, so we're going to take it slow, and we're not going to get through every single nook and cranny, but what I want to do tonight is kind of go have an overture of uh, these verses we've just read. Um, but before we do that, uh, there we go, before we do that, I want to ask for your participation. I want you to imagine with me, all right? I want you to imagine that if you typed your name, your name into Google, that what appeared was a series of news stories about a crime you committed 10 years ago. Now, that might be a very petty crime, maybe lying on your timesheet at work, or a drink-driving incident in your teens, what we would call in the U.S. a DUI. Maybe it's something much larger that brought you shame and hurt to the people around you, something serious, 
something scandalous. But now, it's 10 years later, and you've paid back your employer with interest. You've served your sentence, and you've fully admitted your wrongs. You've owned up. You've moved on. You are a new person. But the story still remains. Now, in the old days, you would have to go to a public library and search through the old newspapers with that thing, I don't know what it's called, where you look at the slides, to find your story in the archives. But now, but now, your past is just one click away. When you moved into the new neighborhood, you were certain people treated me different because they knew my past. Your son said that his friends, when they typed in his last name, saw your mugshot read that article, saw what you did. You're unable to get a job, and you've brought shame upon your entire family. Even though you've moved on and you're a new person, you can't get free from that one mistake you made 10 years ago. Well, that situation is the new problem that our society is grappling with. The thing is, the Internet never forgets. You know the phrase, time heals all wounds, Well, that was largely true in earlier generations when you could sort of count on people's forgetfulness. It was almost a blessed forgetfulness. But now, what the Internet has done is it's unintentionally extended the social consequences of failure. Until recently, humans had comfort knowing that our mistakes rarely, rarely lasted forever. But the Internet has brought us into a Mistakes are forever society. Time isn't sort of linear on the internet. Our sins, our mistakes that get posted online follow us everywhere as if it was yesterday. But the question, but should they remain on the internet? Well, in 2014, the outcome of legal case between Google Spain and Mario Gonzalez in the Court of Justice in the European Union garnered international attention because Mario won against the tech giant, and the European Union ordered that Google remove his name from all articles that recounted his bankruptcy and his mishandling of money posted a decade earlier. Apparently, Google's accurate, true representation of what Mario Gonzalez had done, which was true, was an infringement upon his right to move on. Since then, the European Union has instituted what's called the Right to Be Forgotten Law. Individuals are now allowed to sort of petition and submit requests to news outlets and search engines to have their names expunged from the records to be permanently taken down. But the thing is, no one knows how in the world this is supposed to work. No one does. Who has the right to be forgotten? Surely, you have a right to know if your next-door neighbor is a criminal, right? That's in the public domain. Who has the right to change public records? Who decides which records are kept up and which are taken down? How much much payment is enough? What criteria do you even think about trying to decide that question on? Who has the right to be forgotten? Well, I heard an amazing podcast from a radio station called Radiolab about a newspaper editorial board who is dealing with this exact problem, which is going on across the UK, across the US. Every month, the news team would have a meeting to discuss all the recent right-to-be-forgotten requests from people who wanted their sins removed from the internet. Some were big things, some were small things. 
And each month, the news team would sort of gather together and sit, and they would have court. Whose records should be deleted from public records? Now, as a Christian, it was fascinating to listen in on these discussions because it sounded a lot to me like they were tasked with the role of playing God as they tried to determine which sins can be expunged from society and which sins must be remembered. Because by simply erasing just a couple words, one last name from their website, these news reports had the power to heal and free entire families and communities with one click of one button. However, throughout the interview, the newspaper editor refused to use the F word. He said, it's too powerful, and I don't want to describe what we're doing with that word. The interviewer said, do you mean forgiveness? Because it sounds a lot to me like forgiveness. Who has the right to be forgotten? Who has the right to be forgiven in our modern information age? That is the question no one knows how to answer. Uh, Giles Frazier in The Guardian sums it up very helpfully. I don't know if you're able to read it, but I will read it for us. He writes in The Guardian, Between the collapse of faith in God and the emergence of the Internet, there was a brief historical window in which people in the West could comfortably think of themselves as having established real privacy from external scrutiny. When people believed in God and believed that God knew everything and didn't forget, then we needed forgiveness for past sins. That is, the past needed to be dealt with rather than just denied and deleted. But the same is becoming true again. As Luke's gospel had it thus, there is nothing hidden that will not come to light. The spotless mind was always a fantasy of avoidance. If the internet becomes a great leveler that exposes everyone's failure, then eye for an eye calls for justice that could quickly become, let's just forgive and forget. Theoretically, anyway, the generation that grew up on the internet did also gave us trolling and cyberbullying too. And it's not as if human beings aren't creative enough to discover new ways to feign righteousness, which I think is the far more likely outcome than a more understanding society. Perhaps um, you've heard Christians say, sort of when they're evangelizing, imagine your entire life is sort of projected onto a movie screen and you had to watch all of your mistakes. Wouldn't you need forgiveness? Well, in our new world of surveillance, that's a reality. It's already up for everyone to see. Now, I know there's some of us here whose lives are not lived on social media and whose criminal records, if there are any, are not visible on Google. But... But whether we have an active Twitter page, whether we have those visible criminal records on Google, or whether we can never get our email to work or figure out how to make a table in Microsoft Word, wherever you fall on that boundary, all of us have the same fear, the fear of being found out, excluded, shamed. If what I did comes out into the light, if people really knew the real me, I don't think I'd be lovable. I'd be excluded, I'd be outcast, I'd be condemned, I would be humiliated. So whether it's by keeping up a perfect social media presence and a fake life on the internet, or whether it's wearing masks at church, we are all tempted to anxiously fake our own righteousness, as Giles Frazier suggested. So this evening, what does the Christian message 
have to say to a world arguing for their right to be forgotten? What does Christianity have to offer a world crippled by shame, exclusion, and the need for justice all at once? What does Jesus have for you and for me who are haunted by our fragile pasts, our hidden sins, as we fake our own righteousness and hide in the dark? What does real forgiveness taste like, and what difference does it make in 2020? So to answer that question, we're going to look at Hebrews 9, 15 to 28. And what we're going to see is sort of two parts. We're going to see the logic of forgiveness, and second, the conclusion of forgiveness. So I'm going to ask, we're going to read uh, verses 15 to 22 again on the logic of forgiveness. So let's read verses 15 to 22 again. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when they, when, excuse me, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, in this letter to the Hebrews, the writer makes this sort of radical claim that in Jesus, a whole new era of history has begun, and sort of the appearance, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, it has completely shifted the way the world that we know it. And it's changed the way that humanity and God relates and the way that we relate to each other. Something has happened which has changed everything. Now, in the Old Covenant, there was the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And men and women would offer sacrifices over and over again to be purified and cleansed and forgiven. But even after the blood of the goats and the bulls were spilled, there was still a nine-inch thick curtain that stood between the people and the glory of God. Even the moment the sacrifice was given, the people of Israel were still excluded from the holy of holies. But here we read in verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The logic of forgiveness starts with this one word, transgression. Everything that the writer of Hebrews says stems from this one problem, our transgressions. Now, transgressions is sort of a very churchy word, isn't it? We've all heard it, but I can guarantee you, I can guarantee that you do not use it in your daily life. You never say, I'm sorry, honey, but I've transgressed again. I've forgotten to take out the trash. No one ever says that. It just doesn't sound right. Sounds old, archaic. Uh, if you did say that, um, I owe you a dollar or something because, yeah, um, I'd be very impressed. But 
it has a very, very specific meaning, this word transgression. And a transgression is a violation of trust between two people when someone is wronged by someone they ought to have been able to trust. It's a violation of trust when someone is wronged by someone they should have been able to trust. Maybe that's familiar to your life. Maybe you know what that is like. And at the core of who we are, the writer of Hebrews says, we are hard, we are darkened by transgressions between each other and between God. And underneath the mask we wear, we are all trust breakers, but we are also bear the wounds of transgressions committed against us. You could say we are both the cheated and the cheaters. We are the lied to and we are the liars. We're the deceived and the deceivers, the violated and the unfaithful, the forgotten and the needy. It's not only those who've had news stories written about them that appear on the internet. Each and every single one of us is infected by what the Bible calls sin. Much to our culture's surprise, we're not just good, neutral people who just sort of run into hard circumstances. We're tainted at our very root. And our lives are marked by pain and injustice. And while we ache and we long for that vindication and judgment and justice, when the camera turns to our hearts, we beg and we beg for mercy. So what we're talking about here is not sort of just a tendency to screw up in your daily life. What we're talking about here is that weight that you carry that you don't want anyone else in this room to know about. That's what we're talking about. And the logic of forgiveness refuses to allow those things to just be forgotten. Although, wouldn't it be great if there's a giant delete key that you could press? Or court in the EU, you could sort of hold trial and permanently delete your file from all memory. Now, the right, to forbe- the right to be forgotten law has received lots of pushback precisely for this reason, because justice isn't just that easy. Justice will not allow transgressions to just be forgotten, swept away. And the writer of Hebrews agrees, as we read in verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions. And this is the point. Forgiveness means someone needs to die. Forgiveness means someone needs to die. The Old Testament logic, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's not that backwards, is it? If you rob me, you, you deserve, there needs to be some payment here. This is the point. Transgressions require payment, and that payment often feels like death. Forgiveness is not simply forgetting what has happened and moving on. It's not as if we can sort of snap our fingers at the offense and it just sort of disappears. Someone has to carry the burden. And we normally assume that justice is when the offender pays for the sin he committed, which makes sense. That's justice. But then when we think about forgiveness, we tend to think that forgiveness then must be when the victim sort of forgets the sin or simply cancels the payment or the debt. But that's not actually the toll picture. Forgiveness, rather, is when the victim pays the price rather than the offender. Forgiveness is when the victim pays the price rather than the offender. Forgiveness says, I love you so much, even though you caused me this pain, this harm, and you've introduced this darkness and death into my life. But because I love you, I will absorb that death and bear that wound 
and not hold it against you. I will pay the price. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. It's not simply the magical disappearance of an offense. And the writer of Hebrews agrees in verse 22, he says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We don't have time to look through the writer of Hebrews' illustration of a will, but in the preceding verses, in this sort of paragraph chunk, the writer of Hebrews points to the way that a will cannot go into effect until the one who wrote it dies. We read in verse 16. Justice must be sealed, must be ratified by the shedding of blood. In order to sort of free up this inheritance, as Hebrews puts it, in order to free up a renewed relationship, a way forward, blood must be spilled. A painter um, named Scott Erickson has helpfully illustrated this in one of his paintings, I think, um, titled Forgiveness. This is what it looks like. Um, if you look at it, there's a few different things going on. We, we can maybe guess that these two figures might be brothers as we see a house in the distance. And the one brother's holding a bow and some arrows in his quiver, and the other one, his back is filled with arrows. And if you look at the disposition of these two brothers, of these two men, the one holding the bow doesn't seem that interested. He's, he's quite rigid, isn't he? He's holding the bow at his side. And yet the one with the arrows in his back leans down to embrace the brother. And the radical news of Christianity is that the brother on the right is God. The brother on the right is Jesus, our brother, with arrows in his back, paying a price. This is the truth. God is willing to pay the price for you. Or in the biblical wording from Hebrews, redeem you with his blood, buy you back, pay the price, even with all your arrows that only you know about tonight. In his back, he bends down to wrap you in his arms. The logic of forgiveness means that someone needs to die. Blood must be shed, and the payment must be made. Now, this is different to the way if you were to open a dictionary and go to forgiveness. This is a different way of defining forgiveness. Most dictionaries define forgiveness as simply stopping the feelings of resentment or stopping our desire for evil to be punished or just canceling our debt without repayment. Those who forgive are simply expect to keep on living with the damage that will never be restored. And with this concept of forgiveness, no wonder forgiveness often sounds and feels cruel. Because forgiveness is completely unjust if forgiveness is simply letting evil succeed. Forgiveness is unjust if victims are never heard and no one answers for their pain. Forgiveness is unjust if what was damaged is never restored. Christless forgiveness is the absence of justice. Or you could put it another way, without Jesus, without Christ, forgiveness is anarchy just going around and wiping out debts. But what Christ offers is a unique definition of forgiveness and justice that's so different to our understandings. He does not cancel our debts. He pays our debts. That's an important distinction. He does not stop wanting to punish evil and sin. Rather, he takes it into himself to crush it and to destroy it. 
He alone is able to complete this cycle of justice. He's able to both convict the guilty and pay the penalty and restore the victim. So as as old-fashioned as it sounds, Jesus has paid for your sins and he's paid for mine. And upon the cross, as his blood was shed, he was reconciling the world to himself, you and me, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, with the bow in our hands, he was willing to pay our debt that we ought to have paid. He was willing to take that sin into himself, absorb it, and destroy it. And not only did he suffer pain on a cross, he also bore, an important distinction, our shame and our humiliation on the cross. Now that's a point we often gloss over. We often think, oh, it's just sort of a transaction, but there's more going on. He bears our shame and our humiliation. It's a sobering picture of hope, I think, for all those whose sins are publicized for the world to see. On the modern internet age, as hundreds of people every day submit their right to be forgotten to the powers that be, I can imagine that it would be very comforting thought that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the one who holds all power and all authority, was willing to be tortured and hang naked on a cross to be identified with the most humiliating symbol in all of human history. Virtually every church in the world is known by this image and symbol, the cross. More famous than any news story on Google is the symbol of God's condescension for guilty sinners like you and me. God says, I will be identified by the cross. I will identify myself with their shame and with their humiliation. Um, A famous theologian um, named Karl Barth gives us good advice when we start to think about and we start to sort of image that very well-known symbol we all know, the cross. And he says this. He says, when we see the image of the cross we would do well to always include the two other crosses next to Jesus. Jesus spent his dying moments associated with the lowest of the low, keeping company with, the, with those whom the world condemns. The point of the gospel writers, including the story of Jesus next to the two thieves, is not to emphasize who believed and who didn't. The major point is to locate God. Where is God? Behold, God is on a cross, dying next to criminals, and everything flows from there. God hangs next to those who are publicly condemned for all the world to see. And that is the love of God for you, and it's the love of God for me. Not that he wipes away our sins with the click of a button, but that he pays for our freedom with his blood. Now surely nothing that you or that I can do can put his us into question if that's the case. Our fear of being excluded or condemned is overcome by the inclusion and the forgiveness of God to us. So in an age of surveillance and anxiety, when we're all on edge together because we're afraid of being found out, the good news of Jesus is that it's all been paid for. Justice has been satisfied. His mercy is more than the vilest of sins And as people like you and me spat on him, cursed him, tortured him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he walked that road, hung on a cross, and provided that payment. Now, words like forgiveness just sound extremely familiar. That sometimes we forget how radical and how offensive 
and how bloody forgiveness really is. And so this evening, if you've never accepted the forgiveness of Jesus that has been purchased for you, may you find healing in that and trust him as your Savior. And this evening, if you know that life-altering declaration that you are forgiven, whole and complete, well, we could say, then please enjoy your forgiveness. Taste it. Rest in it. Much to our surprise, God is not against us, but God is for us. Which brings us to the conclusion of forgiveness. The inheritance for which we were bought, as it says in verse 15, so with our time left, I just want to read verses 23 to 28. And what I want to do is I just want to pull out two implications of what this forgiveness m- means for a Monday mornings. So and we're going to read verses 23 to 28 and jump into it. So in verse 23 it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Now throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer emphasizes over and over again the finality and the singularity of Jesus' death. Unlike the Old Covenant, in which sacrifices are offered repeatedly over and over again, this new covenant is marked by one single offered sacrifice. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? Well, to put it as simply as possible, your salvation is an objective fact. Your salvation is an objective fact. The forgiveness given to you and me, it is an objective reality that cannot be tarnished or weakened, nor does it wax or wane with how you feel any given day. Now that's different to the way I used to think about salvation. Um, I used to think of salvation in a very sort of, you could call it subjective way. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say the subjective gospel kind of goes like this. Um, maybe you can resonate with this. (laughs) I used to be a jerk. I didn't really have many friends. I was mean. I even may have used to have done drugs in the past. But now that I have met Jesus, I'm a new person, and my life is perfect, and I have friends. I don't do drugs anymore, and I even have a wonderful smile now, too. Maybe you can sympathize with that. Fill in the blanks where where your life experience is. But the problem with that is, The subjective gospel stakes every single thing on my experience. Because what happens when later down the road, small cracks in my life become larger, and suddenly I don't feel like a new person anymore with a perfect life and a wonderful smile? What then? What if I start to scowl? What can feel as if you're losing your footing and Christianity doesn't seem to be working anymore? What happened to that new Peter a few weeks ago? 
Have you ever felt like that? Well, the rest and the assurance that Christianity offers is not based on our experience of life and the constant temptation of sin, but rather our entire livelihood, our salvation is dependent upon something completely outside of ourselves. Our salvation is based on a real historic event 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus claimed he was God and by his death and resurrection he has forgiven your sins whether you're having a great day or a terrible day. As one writer put it, when people ask him, when were you saved? When were you saved? His reply is, well, I was saved 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. No doubt the message of Jesus has radical, subjective experiences and consequences. However, though, the true objective fact of Jesus crucified is our starting point. It's the difference between feeling like you've been forgiven, which can wax and wane, and the objective reality that you are forgiven. Christianity allows us to get out of ourselves and trust that God loves us and forgives us despite myself. Regardless of whether you're winning or losing in life, you can trust that you are loved and you are redeemed and you are forgiven. This is the problem for those requesting the Google grant to re- that Google grant them the right to be forgotten. It's the same subjective experience. You know, I, I'm a different person now. The one, that one terrible mistake I made 10 years ago, well, I've changed my life. I have a wonderful smile now. Can you forgive me based on my recent track record? Can we just forget about that back there? Well, what if you have a relapse? What if you can't save yourself in the future? What then? Are you going to be prosecuted again and pay another sentence? Just like the temple system, as the priest would continually offer sacrifices over and over again repeatedly, we will let ourselves down. So if you're here this evening thinking, I just don't know if this Christianity thing is working. It doesn't, I don't feel forgiven. Maybe I just need a fresh start, just one more sacrifice of goodness and trying. Well, trust in the one sacrifice that was made so no other sacrifices would have to be offered. Except except the fact that 2,000 years ago, a man died on a hill outside Jerusalem. Real blood was spilled. This is not a vague affirmation of your goodness. It is the real objective blood that cleanses you despite yourself. Or we could put it, Probably most simply, the blood has been shed and you don't get to argue with it. This is the power of the blood. As we read in verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's easy to get caught up wondering whether you're experiencing the right feelings or making the right amount of progress or whether your acceptance of Jesus is strong enough. Well, the one sacrifice of Jesus means you don't need to bear that burden. Whatever happens, you are loved, you are forgiven. So please allow the blood of Jesus to touch your feelings of inadequacy and guilt and shame. There is power in the blood. And last, we're going to end with this. Forgiveness is an act of grace. It is not a right Would you read verses 27 and 28 with me again? Starting verse 27. We read, And just as it pointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Christ has been offered. Forgiveness is not something that is ever earned. It is not something we're entitled to. Unlike the right to be forgotten, you and I do not have a right to be forgiven. It destroys the logic of undeserved grace and mercy. The word right, it risks rooting that erasure of record against and in ourselves. But as the writer of Hebrews says, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. God offers to bear our sins and to save us himself. That's his action. The action of forgiveness is completely an act of God, even at its inception point. Forgiveness is always an undeserved gift of grace. It cannot be argued for. It can only be offered and accepted. To not forgive would not be unjust. In fact, it would be very just to repay the offender for their crime. Well, in the same way, it would be very just for God to not have bore our sins, but to come in judgment and wrath. Not, as the writer of Hebrews says, to save us, but to condemn us. But that is not what God does. He doesn't list our rights and hand out punishments, but rather God's grace abounds to us, completely due to his own good will and pleasure. He sets his gaze of affection on you and on me and says, I want you. Yes, you, the one who would be excluded, who has no inner right to forgiveness. Yes, I want to give you my eternal inheritance and welcome you into heaven itself. Yes, you, the one that deserves the shame, I will come back for you and save you completely. I will bring you to myself. Yes, I will die for my enemies and love them as children. Forgiveness is not of right. It is always undeserved grace and mercy. It does not follow rules of justice, but rather it is driven by the heart of God. So, where is God? Behold, God is on the cross, dying for his enemies. So may we be happily shocked again by the grace of God. And end with a story. Um, on June 17, 2015, a prayer meeting was held at Emmanuel African Episcopal Church. And not that different to ours here at BRBC. It was after a church meeting, so only 12 were able to stay for the prayer meeting. Much to this small African-American congregation surprise, a young, scrawny white boy showed up for the Bible study and prayer. He sat silent throughout the entire meeting as they dissected the parable of the sower in Luke 8 for an entire hour. And then as the meeting came to close, and the pastor asked everyone to pray together one last time to close the meeting, the young boy stood up and he pulled out a handgun, and slowly and steadily, he gunned down nine of those in attendance. Some were elderly, some were pastors. One was a young man named Taiwanza Sanders, and only three of the 12 survived. Dylan Roof was that 21-year-old boy who targeted this historic black church because of his radical white supremacist views and hatred for black people. When police found him, he cooperated and he admitted his guilt without reservation. In court, he admitted, I would like to make crystal clear, I do not regret what I did 
I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the people I have killed. You'll find every detail of his story by the time you get to the third letter of his first name on Google. This past week, I've read the heartbreaking account of this tragedy from reporter Jennifer Hawes, entitled Grace Will Lead Us Home, and it recounts that night of the shooting, the aftermath, and the court case of Dylan Roof. And Felicia Sanders, who's there um, on the bottom of the screen, was among the 12 at that prayer meeting, and she was only one of the three survivors. She looked at Dylan and begged for mercy as she watched him murder her young son, Taiwanza, who had almost not made it to prayer meeting that night. Two years after that night, Dylan's, Dylan Roof's trial had come to a conclusion, and he had been found guilty and sentenced on two accounts for the death penalty. After two years of grieving and mourning death all around her, Felicia was given the opportunity to say one last word to Dylan Roof. And Hawes recounts this. She says, although the lectern was tilted towards Judge Gurgle, she instead pivoted her body to face Roof at his table. The judge smiled kindly. Mrs. Sanders, you hardly need introducing. Roof stared straight ahead as she sat her Bible onto the lectern and fixed his stare and fixed her stare onto him. He might not look at her, she figured, but he could hear her. I call you Dylan Roof, she began, because you deserve respect. The respect you did not give Miss Susie or Reverend Clementa, you did not give respect to Sharonda Singleton, and she named them all, her sorrow building with the remembrance of each person lost so senselessly, senselessly. And no respect for Taiwanza Sanders, my baby, she breathed but I'm going to give you my respect. She couldn't stand to hear fireworks anymore, she explained, or a balloon pop, or even an acorn dropping from a tree. And most important, I cannot shut my eyes to pray. She couldn't let her guard down anymore, or someone else she loved might be gone that quickly. Felicia said, though, today she had brought with her her best defense. Not a gun, not a knife, not her fist. And her voice trembled as she continued, My Bible, abused, abused, torn, and shot up. When I look at the Bible, I see the blood of Jesus shed for me and for you, Dylan Roof. And with that, she picked up her Bible, the one rescued from the Fellowship Hall, the one with a bullet hole in the center still stained with blood from her very own son, and she held it in the air like a wand of faith. Then she pointed it at him. With her fingers, she flipped through its wrinkled, tattered, salvaged pages as if to cast the very Spirit of God toward the evil man before her. Maybe one day yet to come, grace would lead him home as faith had rescued her. Yes, she said, I forgive you. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Someone has to die but the offensive and powerful truth for this evil and twisted and failing world that you and I live in, and for sinners like you and like me, is that on a hill 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, amongst his enemies, God shed his blood for our sins. While we were sinners, it says, Christ died for us. And in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. With arrows in his back, he stooped down to gather us in. There's untold power in the blood of Jesus, power to defeat every evil 
and turn enemies into beloved ones. So this evening, may we find untold peace and rest in the objective fact that you and I have been redeemed by Jesus Christ despite ourselves. You are forgiven. Now, may grace lead us home when he comes back with that eternal inheritance. So would you pray with me as we close? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, can express our thankfulness, um, our gratitude that there has been blood shed for us. We thank you that despite ourselves, we can trust in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we think about our own hidden sins and the things that we don't want anyone in this room to know about, we know and trust that you know those things. And yet, knowing those things, you've died for us. So, Lord, we ask, um, with the forgiveness that you've given to us, shape the way that we interact with each other. We ask that it would bring about a peace and a confidence and a trust that you are God who is for us, who has not withhold his very son for us. So we ask, lead us in that grace and that mercy and make us into merciful and graceful people. Teach us to forgive those who trespass against us as you have forgiven us. So now as we sing, would you be glorified in our hearts and our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.